So the first topic we're going to be having today uh, with both of you guys is we're going to be talking about, obviously, the, the, the state of knowledge labor, right? Which is something I kind of just hope we would get into. Surprise, we're getting into it. Um, and kind of the, the framing questions, which I'll just start off with and then kind of go from there, is the way that we wrote down is like, we're talking a lot about how can leaders determine whether they build labor in-house versus BPOs or through cloud infrastructure. It's kind of like the major options, although there are others, right, that I, I, hope, I hope we'll get into. Um, and then also talking a lot about like how the process of outsourcing is just evolving, right, um, over time. So I think what would be really great to start out with, if you don't mind, is can you each talk through kind of, you know, in a minute or two, kind of your business and how you guys approach the labor pools that you need to access for delivering your services? Yeah, for sure. So I'm Troy. Um, Picnic Health, we empower people to own their health through better medical data. So in practice, what that means is we have to gather a lot of medical records, um, wherever they are, and structure and extract data from those records to put it into a usable, meaningful form. Um, dealing with medical records means we have to like fax places, get stuff in the mail, fax back, and then we have a bunch of images, and we need to um, extract and structure medical concepts from those images. So we have a pretty sizable team at this point in the, in the Philippines that does the work around calling offices, following up, like mapping from where someone's received care to where we need to collect records, um, and then working in the labeling pipeline. So we have machine learning models to attempt to automatically structure uh, pieces of information, and then the team of labelers, primarily nurses or pharmacy techs or lab techs, who will clean up the output of those models. So one, making sure we have clean data through the pipeline that can be used. Um, and then two, providing training data to feed back into those models uh, so that they get better over time and you need less human effort over time. And you guys made, the, so Susan, you guys actually have, these are people in the Philippines, but they're all in-house. Yeah, yeah, so we, um, we had initially started working with a, a BPO and for us, the task was like specialized enough. We had to, I'm sure we'll get into this more in a bit, we had to own so much on the like recruiting and training and management side that it made sense for us to move in-house to the scale that we've gone. Cool. Scott, do you want to talk through your stuff? Uh, so Scott, I work, I've spotted a company called GoTo uh, a couple of years ago, I think middle of 2016, and we hire, train, and manage support staff for SMBs. So our average client size is three, I think we're like, like 3.8 customer service reps per small business. We have about the same size pool. My mind's distributed over 40-some companies, and yours is one. Single site. <laughs> but we have about the, about, we're talking about the same size labor pool working for us. And so what we're working on is we, are, we don't see ourselves as an outsourcing provider. We see ourselves as an HR and technology partner. And we're using technology, including Finn, to help bring you know, these individuals into the fold inside of an organization, right? So we're doing you know, data-driven hiring stuff that they can't really do and need to hire only a couple of customer support reps. Um, you don't have that experience, so we're doing that part of it. We're training them, but we're training our staff more on the cultural side of things. You know, showing up, asking questions, saying what they think, but we're leaving it to the company we work with to really work on the outcome, right? So we're process-focused. Our customers are really responsible for results. Um, on that side of it, it's been incredibly fascinating taking all this data and all this culture. The, uh, I think the average attrition rate inside the BPO industry right now is about 45% a year. Um, and by we don't have this data, over the last couple of years we've gotten our attrition rate down to under voluntary attrition rate, to under 5%. <laughs> um, and the daily absenteeism rate, you know, in a call center is about 25%, and we're at under 2%. 
And all of that's just been taking that data, looking at that data, and understanding, okay, where do we need to reinforce things? How do we see problems before they occur and get in there and deal with them, right? So there's a reliable offshore support staff you know, for our customers. So when you guys think about kind of the spectrum moving forward, right, um, of how people will be employed in these types of human plus machine service-oriented systems, right, and there's just an infinite number of complexity and variation to these, right? But the extremes would be one is, you know, we'll call it mechanical Turk style, zero training required, you're literally just using, you know, human intelligence at a pretty low, you know, low, low level, all the way through to full-time people staffed on shifts that are defined, et cetera, et cetera. You know, let's assume that all of these models will still exist mm -hmm. in the future. Like, I doubt, at least, and you challenged me on this, that like, any one of them will completely go away. Mm -hmm. But how will you think about, starting from a startup perspective, like how people will slot into making choices about their knowledge pool or their, their human worker pools? Yeah. Do you want to start? Um, so my, I mean, it feels like freelance platforms like Upwork or you know, traditional BPO, is sort of like those first steps. You know, we're looking at, what, there's two billion people that didn't have the internet five years ago that now do. Like, we're only able to do what we do in the last couple of years because people can get broadband to their house, right? So before they had to go work at a BPO company or they didn't have access, right? So when you look at where it's going, it's just that single component, right? Just having access to data, having fast broadband, building a conference call, being able to feel like you're in the room, it's putting power back in the hands of, you know, people doing these tasks. Um, and so when we look at, like, Will the model go away? No. There's going to be a larger pivot to the independent contractor th side of things, 100%. At the same time, there's a lack of accountability there, right? Like, you know, developers just don't show up one day. Your support labor just doesn't show up one day. There's a lack of trust in both directions, right? And so we see it as systems that are, like, building trust. How do we have those trust mechanics? How do you create a system of accountability so you can hold people accountable long term, right? And you do run into a lot of, especially with outsourcing, you run into a lot of cultural blocks, you know? If, you know, opportunity is equally distributed, talent is equally distributed, right? Then what would the problem be? It's culture, right? And that's the biggest thing, that the hurdle we see we have trouble overcoming, you know? Whereas BPO can be a bit suppressive with the labor side of things. We, you know, I'm all about the employee experience side of it. Um, there's a lot of changes that need to happen there, which is also where you push for, like, the in-house piece, right? Like, you're part of our team. But just kind of going forward, no matter whether they're with a BPO provider or they're a freelancer, making them feel like they're part of that company yeah. mm -hmm. seems like the most important part to us. Yeah, I think, um, like you were saying, in that, in that spectrum of like fully in-house to anonymous cloud, maybe, of, of people, those, those all, I think, will stay. I mean, better, better data, better analytics, stuff like Finn, I think, supports across, um, across that spectrum. Um, for us, I think the things that pushed us ultimately to in-house were, um, one, the specialization of knowledge we required, mm -hmm. um, because there aren't the, the amount of training that it took for someone to get productive for us is down to four weeks. It was at like eight weeks um, when we started. So like having tight control over that and screening the type of people that we would recruit and like the recruiting channels that we wanted uh, made it really important for us to bring it in-house. Um, I think if you're doing, you know, there's a lot of people that are doing image labeling for self-driving cars. Um, it doesn't, you don't need to have that be in-house, say. Um, for us, another piece of it is around like security and compliance. I think with a lot of different platforms, you can, um, whether whether it's a BPO or probably not as much on the uh, mechanical Turk side of things, um, be able to meet compliance requirements uh, with an, a non-in-house uh, labor force. But that's another factor that I think jumps in. And then the third would just be scale, like the number of people 
on your team at some point when it gets large enough, the economics just make more sense for you to bring it in-house. But I think that, that point is we probably came there a lot earlier because of the specificity of like, our task. But for most people, I would imagine you get to the even, even like hundreds of people equivalent um, before that makes sense. So when you think about like the technologies that impact the decision making around like these kind of different what types of labor pools and the shape of the pool that you're working with. I mean, you know, you both brought up both like attrition and churn, and then mm. also this question of training time, right? And the less the harder training is, or the more judgment is required, the more you kind of need to bring things in house, right? Whereas the more you are plugging people into very specific you know, basic human tasks, like human intelligence type tasks, the less you need that. If you could like imagine any technology, right, or a thing that would dramatically change the, the balance effectively, where, where would it be? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> working on it, right? Um, Sorry? So you're working on it, right? I think we all are, but um, man. I want to get to your platform statement on that. That's a good question. This is not, you don't have to shill for me. This is more no, like... No, I'm not shilling for you. <laughs> I'm saying, like, imagine that new technology, like something that, like, pushes it forward. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just want to plug myself here. But, um, I mean, it really is just pieces for accountability when it comes to, come back to it when it comes to, like, offshoring, right? If you look at a lot of businesses that aren't offshoring right now are going to need to. If you look at like the labor pool, the projected labor pool in 2030 was like $2 trillion in US jobs, I think they won't build a staff. And a lot of those are entry level, level jobs, right? So technology that makes remote labor more accessible to small businesses is a big piece of it because they're gonna be competing for that same level of labor pools, enterprise level businesses, and there just isn't enough people yeah. that are gonna wanna do those jobs. And so technology that makes that accessible. Yeah, I think. I have an analogy that I think is somewhat orthogonal, but we'll, we'll come, to, um, come to answer here. We think of the analogy of like a data factory a lot, where it's like you have, you have stuff coming in, you're applying a process, and you're producing data at the, at the end. And when you have like a manufacturing line, um, there's times when automation is really effective um, because you're going to have like a very stable product, there's not going to be that many changes, so it makes sense to make the capital investment in automation, um, which also means that you know, people are less specialized when you like, bring them into the factory. If you're going to have things that are changing a lot, um, like let's say you have a product and you have a new version every year, it doesn't necessarily make sense to invest in uh, building automation and robotics because you're going to have to retrain people and so you won't be able to recoup those costs. I think the same thing kind of applies to software systems and like this sort of like knowledge labor data factory type situation when the cost of building automation into into a system is higher mm -hmm. um, there are more scenarios where you want more specialized people yep um, in that pipeline but the easier it is to build automation in um, that is like differentiated and specialized to your task the easier it will be to have less trained people. Um, so that's not like a 100% direct answer, but it's kind of like anything that makes it easier. I mean, the thing I think of, you know, like the Baxter robot from like Rethink Robotics, where it's like super easy to try to train someone how, train the robot how to do a particular task. Technologies like that, but applied to knowledge labor would shift away from needing like as much in-house to 
more uh, easier for like you know BPO ways to leverage collective intelligence better from company yeah. to company who comes to think like that's a big part of what we do is like okay we have you know a Slack channel of forty different companies and like all of our VAs can go and they can talk to each other like how do you do this thing in Zendesk yeah. you know there's people on one company training another person on another company how to you know put a live chat bot in place in intercom right. Like that piece there is great. We're just duct taping it. Like, okay, you from this company talk to you. We'll see who's productive and we do use Finn for that. Okay, yeah. who's using this well, right? <laughs> you go train this person in this other company, right? But technology that can start to bring those pieces together, you know, where a company can see that gap and then like share that information. So there's been for a decade, for a long time now, this offshoring drive, right? I mean, you guys both know this well, right? In terms of like using BPOs, doing it in-house, but like moving labor to cheaper centers. And I think part of the rationale is exactly, um, you know, what you guys said, which is just like, look, talent, intelligence, pretty evenly distributed globally. You know, it's just, you know, but the, the last part is like the cultural attunedness, mm -hmm. right? And one thing I wonder about is as you get more and more partial automation, right? The really rote stuff, you do encode with technology. You don't need people to just churn that effectively. And the work that's left is, in theory, more conditional, more judgment-oriented, et cetera. Hmm. I mean, how realistic do you think it is that we'll see in the next 10 years kind of a reversal of that, right? Where the technology gets sufficiently good, where there's a lot of pressure to onshore, right? Um, do you think that's a realistic thing that will happen, or is that more of a like intellectual pipe dream? Um, it feels to me like maybe a 10-year time scale is too too fast um, for to to see that sort of pressure mount. If where we're saying like the driving factor is that the well, sorry, I'm gonna backtrack a little bit. I think I think it depends on the the domain. So if it's like something more around like. Uh, you know, customer service type things where you're interacting, where your agent is interacting directly with uh, your end user. Um, there already is like some pressure, right, to to move from center in India or some, somewhere else to like, you know, maybe Arizona, uh, Utah, different places in the U.S. So I think you already see that to some degree there. I think for the other kinds of like labeling tasks where you don't necessarily have as much context, I mean, I don't know. I think there are a lot of tasks where context helps, uh, but I think a 10-year time scale is maybe too short, maybe more like 20. So I got into what I do because I was, I was working with e-commerce companies helping them scale, and they couldn't hire good support labor. And I got harder and harder to find people that wanted those jobs and would stay in those jobs. And I was like, all right, well, there's money here. Let me try and figure out a solution for these small businesses I was working with. And I don't see that problem changing. You know, even as you know, RPAs and stuff make people a lot more efficient, you don't need as many agents it's still hard to find people here who own that job long-term, who are going to want to stay in that job, who are going to have a sense of pride around that job. Like, it's hard to hire someone in this city in particular who's going to come in and work for $18, $25 an hour and be your customer service rep for a couple of years and take ownership of that job. And I don't think that's going to change. I think it's going to get harder. And even though I look at all of the stuff, like, it makes people five times more efficient, right? There's still a whole bunch of different opportunities. Like, you look at, like, people are so concerned, like, the agriculture industry going from, like, 40% to, like, less than, way less than 1%, right? Like, okay, blue-collar labor's going to go away. No, it's increased. It's just changed, right? And it's the same thing, at least in my opinion. So what do you guys think? I mean, like, there's obviously different takes about, um, I mean, uh, one of the reasons I think it's so interesting to have you on this, this discussion is this kind of, you guys have, as a, as a very young company, made a somewhat counterintuitive move, right, in terms of, you know, doing stuff yourself, right? Yeah. And, yeah. like, I guess the question in my mind is, like, what role do you think BPOs 
and I think you both are going to have different opinions on this, but like play in the future. Like what is the value add, right, in a world where like you can access global talent yourself efficiently, et cetera? Hmm. Good question. Um, I will say, I think when we went from like 20 agents to 100 agents and beyond, there were like some pretty big infrastructure things that we had to put in place around um, culture and team environment uh, that are like very undifferentiated. Um, it's, it, I mean, you can differentiate by having a better environment in places, but not specific to like our business. Um, that any organization managing a site that has several hundred people will need to to deal with. Um, and so because that isn't you know, specialized or part of like a core competitive advantage for a lot of companies, I do see um, BPOs being able to play a strong role there. Mm -hmm. um, it happened to be for us that the right move was to bring in-house um, because some of these, the other things around like the specificity of the task, us needing to owning recruiting, outweighed the disadvantage of having to build in that non-differentiated skill. Um, but that will still exist. There will be companies that need sites that are like locked down and controlled for what they're dealing with financial data, health data, some, some compliance reason. And in a lot of cases, I think it will make sense to use a BPO mm -hmm. to manage that site if your competency is not site management. So as far as like BPOs in the future, it's just the biggest thing is, and all the complaints you get, like I started outsourcing because I hate outsourcing. You know, <laughs> I was like, this is the worst. Um, it's how do you breaking down those silos? And how do companies that have, you know, this old business structure, bureaucracy business structure, when you're starting to leverage, you know, a cloud infrastructure, all this data is going directly to your client, right? Which a lot of times it's not, you know? You see, a lot of times that's the biggest issue is you're working with, you know, a big BPO provider, you have a team of a couple hundred or a couple thousand, and you don't actually understand what's going on, on the ground, and they don't want to show you, right? And that has to go away. The transparency has to come into place, and how BPO businesses adjust to a transparent culture and build that transparency and are able to rebuild that trust, right? That's going to affect their ability to get good employees. It's going to affect their ability to have customers, right? They have to be a conduit between these two labor pools. They can't be a wall. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how do you take down that wall, and how do you readjust your business model, which is really, we're going to pay you $2 an hour, we're going to charge $8 an hour, right? Like, the more visibility you have, the more we're, the employees directly accountable to the client, the harder it is to justify that, right? And the more ways there are for the, you know, the client to go and access their labor pool in other directions. They have to have that value add, right? They have to be pushing that transparency as opposed to, like, being the thing that keeps it from being visible. I will, I will say that dynamic was like one strong thing that pushed us to decide to go in-house was, I mean, seeing that like $2 an hour, $8 an hour, there's like not $6 of value that we were getting from the BPO we were using. But it does not mean that like a good PPO is not providing that value. Yeah, I mean, the biggest reason that like we do some part of training, we do the culture stuff, but the reason our attrition rate and stuff's worth that is we can just pay more. We're mm -hmm. leveraging technology mm -hmm. to hire people. Like we want, our Facebook ads are like targeting task us team lead. You know, because we can afford to pay that because we're just not having to do all those other pieces, right? We're just doing the relationship management. Mm -hmm. and it's a lot easier to facilitate the relationship and we're honest about it. Like, if you ask us what our costs are, we'll send it to a client. But, like, a lot of companies don't do that. ePama does it really well, but most of them don't. So I guess the other question I'd love to dig in a little bit on is, like, for all sorts of historical, structural reasons, just complexity of communication, et cetera, there has been this area where, like, people pick sites, right? They're like, I'm going to have my... My customer service team or my operations team or my back office team is here, right? Or if you're really big, you're here, here, and here, right? Um, do you think that you start getting to a world sooner than later 
where you're kind of, your team is even more distributed, right? And you're cherry picking different skills from very different geos and locations? Or do you think that there's enough return on local scale that that will be kind of the trend for the foreseeable future? We have an office in Cebu in Davao City, and both of them will be shut down by the end of this year. So we'll be a completely remote company by the end of this year. It takes about two and a half hours now for most people to commute to their BPL office in Manila. If you look at India, they're running the same problems. Working from home is a huge advantage, especially because then you don't have to deal with a lot of regulatory issues and a lot of like tax issues. And I mean, our contractors are WA Ben, right? And that just makes life a heck of a lot easier. Mm -hmm. It's like the same models upward, the same way that they deal with it. And that distributed piece, like traffic, communication, dealing with like government issues, just gets taken away when you allow them to be a remote employee. So we've got, you know, we have people in Zimbabwe, we have people in Dubai, we've got people in Argentina, and there are different skills, just culturally, because we're talking about more culture, we're, we're mostly soft skills, we're working on customer support, sales, stuff like that. And yeah, there's a real trend, like some of our managers who are managing our team are in Africa, because they're really good at radical candor. They say what they think, whereas our staff at the Philippines are having a harder time expressing their thoughts, so we're like, hey, you, who is a little too, a little too aggressive and a little too abrupt with your opinion, why don't you work this person who's having a hard time just speaking up? and you know, have them doing skip levels and peer-to-peer -peer and stuff like that. So we're kind of looking at the cultural side of let's hire in this country, let's hire here, let's hire with this mindset, let's hire from this background, and see how they can help each other develop, which is really cool. I think there's a similar dynamic too when you're looking at an engineering team. If you're gonna have a fully distributed remote team, there are some gains that you get um, to having everybody on one site or in one location. Obviously there's gains to having a fully remote team as well. Um, the, I think with, sort of knowledge labor, the extent to which um, an agent's tasks are disconnected from other people means that the gains to being co-located are smaller. Um, the more that you know, someone's task crossover with the type of, spe someone's specialized task crossover with the type of task someone else could be doing, the more value you can have from having them, having them on the same site. I think in addition, in like a regulated space, it's like not an option to have people work from home. Like we have to, we own all the computers people use. We manage them super tightly. Like we have to have like biometric entry and like all this, all this stuff because we're dealing with health data and it's very sensitive. Um, so I think there's some legal reasons why you definitely won't see uh, fully distributed, fully distributed, 100% of the time. But yeah. there, there are cases where you know, better software you have, the more you can get your tasks differentiated and specialized, it's more possible for you to get more distributed. One of the reasons we actually went remote was to have better data on how people were communicating. Hmm. I mean, when they were in office, we couldn't see it all, but now we're using technology, like we have communication scores. How much is each person talking to each other? How often are customers going back and forth? How long does it take to respond to a question? Who's working with who? Where are our peers helping each other out? When are they not? You know, you look at someone who has 14 direct reports, like who's at the bottom of that ladder and how do we elevate them back up and how do we rotate through that? And by having them in the same office, we didn't have that visibility. Yeah. Right? So having it all online, like how often you're on a conference call, how much time is each person talking? Like that stuff is super interesting and we're able to actually have this people analytics by distributing them. Well, that definitely wins for the, so far, we'll see how it goes by the end of the day, the most science fiction answer is like, well, we need to separate people so that we know how they're communicating. <laughs> it, it works though. Like, that was the problem. We were having the most issues in office when it came to like accountability. So we're like, okay, are you actually dealing for direct reports? Well, if yeah. you're not in the same office, you can see it. So I guess one other question I ask you guys, you guys are obviously both coming from a bottoms-up startup opinion. And we have people here from much larger companies, right, um, to say the least. Uh, and I guess the question is, I always find it interesting, it's like a lot of times startups, because you start with nothing, you can kind of pick your course given the current environment totally. If you're putting a hat on, pretending for a second that you worked at a huge company, you had 50,000 support agents and four BPOs right now, right? 
Um, and you knew a lot of these shifts we're talking about are coming. What would you do? Pilot it, like small pilots, separate it, compare it, just A-B test it, you know? Not assume I knew what we're doing, but can afford to go put small teams in lots of places and try it out. Mm -hmm. And just experiment with it, and once you see things working, scale them up. I think in the scenario where you have like 50,000 agents, your tasks are, you have much better understanding of like what your tasks are. They're maybe not going to Yeah, you'd be change. surprised. No? <laughs> I'm kidding. You can. I, I, think, I think you don't want to, there's probably the extent to which you're discovering, you're not going to try to like make changes. I mean, like you're saying, you're gonna, when you make changes, you're going to make them on a small scale. You're not going to want to make them across your entire labor force. And so for your... Um, your team that is maybe not your like experimental new product mm -hmm. introduction type team, you don't want to manage, you don't necessarily want to manage as much yourself. And so I think you're happier to push that off to uh, another entity so that you focus on the things that are important cool. to you. I, when we finally, so we started off with a bunch of like seven figure businesses. We took on the first like billion plus like customer service team. I was shocked at how little difference it was. Hmm. I have to say, like, I thought it'd be organized. It's like, okay, you guys gotta have this. You're doing X amount of revenue. You have this figured out. It's like, oh, wait. <laughs> the yeah. same problem as these little startups. So we're gonna wrap up in a second, but I did wanna kinda open it up. Does anyone have a question they wanna, a last question they wanna ask of these guys? Bueller. Bueller. Zero questions. All right, if there really are no questions, then I will ask the last question. All right, so I guess like the last question I'd ask you guys, seriously, no questions? <laughs> is, um, They're fascinated, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> is, I guess, um, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of remote people, right? Um, but not about this idea of like knowledge clouds, right? Or like the, the mechanical, Tur the, the next generation of mechanical Turk-esque type things. And let's take out image labeling because that doesn't count, right? Um, when you guys think about the businesses that you're working on and working with, if you had to pick a piece or a slice that would be the next piece where you're like, we actually understand this problem well enough and it's self-similar enough and it requires little enough training, right? What is the next piece that you think could move into that direction, if anything? Um, as I think for a second, the one that comes to mind immediately is we have an OCR correction step where mm -hmm. you're taking a word and you're typing in um, if there was low confidence output what that word should be. But that kind of fails the image labeling, not image labeling criteria. Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll think on it a little more. <laughs> There's so much echo coming off of that when you sit over there. I can barely, I'm like trying to like hear back your question. Um, the next piece that we can implement what we're doing? If or? you were to kind of push one piece of the work you do, Nope. fully all the way out to a piecemeal model, what would it be? I mean, our end would just be coaching, like coaching other teams, you know, coaching other people's teams, helping with that cultural side of stuff. Um, that's kind of where we've been going, the opportunities have been coming up. There's a real gap there when it comes to, like, teaching customers who are working with people in the BPO industry where they need to be sensitive. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially because we're in the Philippines, the problem is, like, culturally, your first conversation, seem, things seem so... Oh, we're on the same page. We're kind of speaking with the same accent here. We both watched Friends growing up, right? And there's a real blocker there. And like, people are having two different conversations. They don't even know it, right? Mm -hmm. So like, and how do we create better training around that and better training for people who are working in ops to understand that they're not getting the results they need to get to because they're not having the conversation they think they're having. And how you put those pieces together. Fair enough. Did you have one last thing you wanted to add? I did. I did, I did come up with one. So um, we have to map between... Uh, sometimes patients enter information or enter a facility, and we don't know. Um, 
we have to like find the fax number for that place where we're going to fax. I think that, that's one that we could do. Find a fax number. Find a fax number for a location. <laughs> for it's 1980 all over again. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Guys, thank you so much. Um, you'll be around for beers, right? Yeah. I'm pushing beers if you can't tell. <laughs> so uh, I hope you guys all, all get to meet and hang out. Uh, and thanks for joining for the conversation.